Chapter 25 of Marie Antoinette and Her Son. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louis Mulbach. King Louis the Seventeenth. The one and indivisible republic bad gains the victory over the lilies of France in their dark and unknown graves in the Madeleine churchyard, King Louis the Sixteenth and Marie Antoinette slept their last sleep. The monarchy had perished on the guillotine, and the Republicans, the preachers of liberty, equality, and fraternity, repeated triumphantly, Royalty is forever extinguished, and the glorious Republic is the rising sun, which is to bring eternal deliverance to France. But in spite of this jubilant cry, the foreheads of the Republican leaders darkened, and a peculiar solicitude took possession of their hearts when their eyes fell upon the temple, that great dismal building that threw its dark shadows over the sunny path of the Republic. Was it regret that darkened the brows of the regicides as they looked upon this building, which had been the sad prison of the King and Queen? Those hearts of bronze knew no regret, and when the heroes of the Revolution crossed the Place de la Guillotine, on which the royal victims had perished, their eyes flashed more proudly, and did not fall, even when they passed by the Madeleine churchyard. No, it was not the recollection of the deed that saddened the brows of the potentates of the Republic, when they looked at the dismal temple, but the recollection of him who was not yet dead, but who was still living as a captive in the gloomy state prison of the Republic. The prisoner was indeed only a child of eight years, but the legitimists, and there were many of them still in the country, called him the King of France, and priests in royal Vendée, when they had finished the daily mass for the murdered king, prayed to God with uplifted hands for grace and deliverance for the young captive at the temple, the young king, Louis the Seventeenth, Le roi est mort, vive le roi. There were, it must be confessed, among the royalists and legitimists, many who thought of the young prisoner with bitterness and anger, and who accused and blamed him as the calumniator of his mother, as if the child knew what he was doing, when at the command of his tormentor Simon he wrote with trembling hand his name upon the paper which was laid before him in the open court, as if the poor innocent boy knew what meaning the dreadful questions had, which the merciless judges put to him, and which he answered with no or with yes, according as his scrutinising looks were able to make out the fitting answer on the hard face of Simon, who stood near him, for the unhappy lad had already learned to read the face of the turnkey, and knew very well that every wrinkle of the forehead which was caused by him must be atoned for with dreadful sufferings, abuses, and blows. The poor boy was afraid of the heavy fist that came down like an iron club upon his back, and even on his face, when he said anything, or did anything that displeased Simon or his wife and therefore he sought to escape this cruel treatment, confirming with his yes and no what Simon told the judges, and what the child in his innocence did not understand. 
and therefore he subscribed the paper without reluctance, in which he unconsciously gave evidence that disgraced his mother. With this testimony, they ventured to accuse Marie Antoinette of infamy, but the Queen gave it no other answer than scornful silence, and a proud and dignified look, before which the judges cast down their eyes in shame. Then after a pause they repeated their question and demanded an answer. Marie Antoinette turned her proud and yet gentle glance to the women who had taken possession in dense masses of the spectators' gallery and who breathlessly awaited the answer of the Queen. I appeal to all mothers present, she said, with her sad sonorous voice. I ask whether they hold such a crime to be possible. No one gave audible reply, but a murmur passed through the ranks of the spectators, and the sharp ear of the judges understood very well the meaning of this sound, this language of sympathy, and it seemed to them wiser to let the accusation fall, rather than rouse up the compassion of the mothers, still more in behalf of the Queen. Her condemnation was an event fixed upon. The guilty had been spoken in the hearts of the judges, long before it came to their lips, and brought the Queen to the guillotine. Marie Antoinette referred to this dreadful charge in the letter which she wrote to her sister-in-law Elizabeth in the night before her execution, a letter which was, at the same time, her testament and her farewell to life. "'May my son,' she wrote, "'never forget the last words of his father. I repeat them here expressly. May he never seek to avenge our death.' and now I have to speak of a matter which surely grieves my heart. I know what trouble this child must have occasioned you. Forgive him, my dear sister. Think how young he is, and how easy it is to induce a child to say what people want to have him say, and what he does not understand. The day will come, I hope, when he shall better comprehend the high value of your goodness and tenderness to both of my children. Footnote. Beauchene. Louis the seventeenth, Seville et son agonie, etc. Volume one, page one hundred and fifty. Facsimile of Marie Antoinette's letter. At this same hour, when Marie Antoinette was writing this, there was a dispute between Simon and his wife, who had been ordered by the convention to watch the night, in order that the enraged legitimists might not make an effort to abduct the son of the queen. They were contending whether the execution would really occur the next day. Simon, in a jubilant tone, declared his conviction that it would, while his wife doubted. She is still handsome, she said gloomily. She knows how to talk well, and she will be able to move her judges, for her judges are men. But justice is a woman, and she is unshakable, cried Simon emphatically. And as his wife continued to contradict, Simon proposed a bet. The wager was that if the Queen of France should be guillotined the next noon, the one who lost should furnish brandy and cakes the next evening for a jollification. The next morning Simon repaired with a little prisoner to the platform of the tower, from which there was a free lookout over the streets, and where they could plainly see what was going on below. His wife, meanwhile, had left the temple at early dawn with her dreadful knitting work. "'I must be on the spot early if I want a good place today,' she said, "'and it would be a real misfortune for me "'if I should not see the miserable head of the she-wolf drop "'and not make a double stitch in my stocking.' "'But you forget, Jeanne-Marie,' said Simon with a grin. "'You forget that you lose your bet if you make the mark in your stocking.' 
I would rather lose all the bets that were ever made than not make the mark in my stocking, cried the knitter grimly. I would rather lose my wedding dress and my marriage ring than win this bet. Go up to the platform with the young wolf and wait for me there. As soon as I have made the mark in my stocking, I will run home and show it to you. It is too bad that I cannot go with you, said Simon, sighing. I wish I had never undertaken the business of bringing up the little capet. It is hateful work, for I can never leave the temple, and I am just as much a prisoner as he is. The Republic has done you a great honour, said the knitter solemnly. She has confidence that you will make out of the son of the she-wolf, out of the worthless scion of tyrants, a son of the Republic, a useful citizen. Good talk, growled Simon, and you have only the honour of the affair, and the satisfaction besides of plaguing the son of our tyrants a bit. Of taking revenge, struck in the knitter, revenge for the misery which my family has suffered from the tyrants. But I, continued Simon, I have certainly the honour of the thing, but I have also the burden. In the first place, it is very hard to make a strong and useful citizen of the Republic out of this whining, tender and sensitive urchin, and then again it is very unpleasant and disagreeable to have to live like a prisoner always. Listen, Simon, hear what I promise, said Jean-Marie, laying her hard brown hand upon Simon's shoulder. If the Austrian atones today for her crimes, and the executioner shows her head to the avenged people, I will give up my place at the guillotine as a knitter, will remain with you here in the temple, will take my share of the bringing up of the little capet, and you yourself shall make the proposition to the supervisor, that your wife, like yourself, shall not be allowed to leave the temple. That is something I like to hear, cried Simon, delighted. There will then be at least two of us to bear the tedium of imprisonment. So go, Jean-Marie, take your place for the last time at the guillotine, for I tell you, you will lose your bet. You will have to furnish brandy and cakes, and stay with me here at the temple to bring up the little capet. So go! I will go up to the platform with the boy and wait there for your return. He called the little Louis Charles, who was sitting in the tottering rush chair in his room, and anxiously waiting to see whether his master was going to take him that day out of the dismal dark prison. Come, little Capet, cried Simon, pushing the door open with his foot. Come, we will go up on the platform. You can take your ball along and play, and I advise you to be right merry today, for it is a holiday for the Republic and I am going to teach you to be a good Republican. So if you want to keep your back free from my straps, be jolly today and play with your ball. Oh, cried the child, springing forward merrily with his ball. Oh, only be good, master, and I will certainly be merry, for I like to play with my ball, and I am ever so fond of holidays. What kind of one is it today? No matter about you knowing that, you little toad, growled Simon who in spite of himself had compassion on the pale face of the child that looked up to him so innocently and inquiringly. Up the staircase, quick, and play and laugh. Louis obeyed with a smile, sprang up the high steps of the winding stairway, jumped about on the platform, throwing his ball up in the air and shouting aloud when he caught it again with his little thin hands. Meanwhile, Simon stood leaning on the iron railing that surrounded the platform, looking with his searching eyes down into the street, which far below ran between the dark houses like a narrow ribbon. The wind now brought the sustained notes of the drums to him, 
Then he saw the street below suddenly filled with a darkness, as if the ribbon were turning into crepe that was filling all Paris. The people are in motion by thousands, cried Simon delightedly, and all rushing to the Place de la Revolution. I shall win my bet. And again he listened to the sound that came up to him, now resembling the beat of drums, and now a loud cry of exultation. Now I think Samson must be striking the head off the wolf, growled Simon to himself, and the people are shouting with pleasure, and Jean-Marie is making a mark in her stocking, and I, poor fellow, cannot be there to see the fine show. And this miserable brat is to blame for it, he cried aloud, turning suddenly round to the child who was playing behind him with his ball, and giving him a savage blow with his fist. You are the cause, stupid, that I cannot be there to-day. Master, said the child beseechingly, lifting his great blue eyes, in which the tears were standing up to his tormentor. Master, I beg your forgiveness if I have troubled you. Yes, you have troubled me, growled Simon, and you shall get your thanks for it in a way you will not like. Quick, away with your tears. Go on with your play if you do not want your back to make acquaintance with my straps. Merry, I say, little Capet, merry. The boy hastily dried his tears, laughed aloud as a proof of his merriment, and began to jump about again and to play with his ball. Simon listened again and looked down longingly into the streets, which were now black with the surging masses of men. Steps were now heard upon the stairway, and Jean-Marie presently appeared on the platform. With a grave, solemn air, she walked up to her husband and gave him her stocking, on which three great drops of blood were visible. That is her blood, she said calmly. Thank God I have lost the bet. What sort of a bet was it? asked the boy with a smile and giving his ball a merry toss. The bet is nothing to you, answered Jean-Marie, but if you are good, you will get something by and by and have a share in the payment of the bet. That evening there was a little feast prepared in the gloomy rooms of the Simons. The wife paid the wager, for the Queen of France had really been executed, and she had lost. She provided two bottles of brandy and a plum cake, and the son of the murdered queen had a share in the entertainment. He ate a piece of the plum cake, and under the fear of being beaten if he refused, he drank some of the brandy that was so offensive to him. From this time the unhappy boy remained under the hands of the cobbler and his cruel wife. In vain his aunt and his sister implored their keepers to be allowed to see and to talk with the prince. They were put off with abusive words, and only now and then could they see him a moment through the crack in the door, as he passed by with Simon on his way to the winding staircase. At times they came up through the floor of their room, for Simon, who was no longer porter, had the rooms directly beneath those occupied by the princesses. The crying and moaning of the little prince, filling their hearts with pain and bitterness, for they knew that the horrible keeper of the Dauphin was giving his pitiable ward a lesson, i.e., he was beating and maltreating him. Why? For what reason? One day perhaps because he refused to drink brandy, the next because he looked sad, or because he asked to be taken to his mother, or the princesses, or because he refused to sing the ribald songs which Simon tried to teach him about Madame Vito, or the Austrian she-wolf. In this one thing the boy remained immovable. Neither threats, abuse, nor blows would force him to sing scurrilous songs about his mother. Out of fear he did everything else that his tormentor bade him. He sung the Marseillaise and the Cairo. He danced the Car Magnol, uttered his loud hurrahs as Simon drank a glass of brandy, 
to the wheel of the one and indivisible republic. But when he was ordered to sing mocking songs about Madame Vito, he kept a stubborn silence, and nothing was able to overcome what Simon called the obstinacy of the little viper. Nothing, neither blows nor kicks, neither threats nor promises. The child no longer ventured to ask after his mother, or to beg to be taken to his aunt and sister. But once in a while, when he heard a noise in the room above, he would fix his eyes upon the ceiling for a time, and with an expression of longing, when he dropped them, again the clear tears ran over his cheeks like transparent pearls. He did not speak about his mother, but he thought of her, and once in the night he seemed to be dreaming of her, for he raised himself up in bed, kneeled down upon the miserable dirty mattress, folded his hands and began to repeat in a loud voice the prayer which his mother had taught him. The noise awakened Simon, who roused his wife to let her listen to the superstitious little monkey whom they would cure for ever of his folly. He sprang out of bed, took a pitcher of cold water that was standing on the table and poured it upon the head of the kneeling boy. Louis Charles woke up with a shriek and crouched down in alarm, but the whole bed was wet, only the pillow had been spared. The boy rose carefully, took the pillow, carried it into a corner of the room and sat down upon it but his teeth chattered with a cold in spite of himself. This awakened Simon a second time, just as he was dropping asleep. With a wild curse, he jumped out of bed and dressed himself. "'That is right,' called Jean-Marie. "'Bring the brat to his senses. Make little Capet know that he is to behave respectfully.' And Simon did make the poor boy understand it. Sitting on the pillow, shivering in his wet shirt, he seized him by his shoulders, shook him so angrily from one side to another, and shouted, I will teach you to say your part and noster, and get up in the night like a trappist. The boy remained silent. Simon's rage, which knew no bounds when he thought he was defied or met with stubbornness, entirely took possession of him. He caught up his boot, whose sole was secured with large iron nails, and was on the point of hurling it at the head of the unoffending boy, when the latter seized his arms with convulsive energy. "'What have I done to you, master, that you should kill me?' cried the little Louis. "'Kill you, you wolf-brat,' roared Simon, "'as if I wanted to, or ever had wanted to. "'Oh, the miserable viper! "'So you do not know that if I only took fairly hold of your neck, "'you never would scream again.' "'And with his powerful arm he seized the boy "'and hurled him upon the water-soaked bed. "'Louis lay down without a word, without a complaint.' and remained there shivering, and with chattering teeth until morning. Footnote. Beauchesne, Louis XVII, Volume 2, page 185. From this period there was a change in the boy. Until this time his moist eyes had fixed themselves with a supplicating look upon his tormentors, when they threatened him. But after this they were cast down. Until now he had always sought to fulfil his master's commands with great alacrity. Afterwards he was indifferent and made no effort to do so, for he had learned that it was all to no purpose, and that he must accept a fate of slavery and affliction. The face of the child, once so rosy and smiling, now took on a sad, melancholy expression. His cheeks were pale and sunken. The attractive features of his face were disfigured. His limbs grew to a length disproportionate to his age. His back bent into a bow, as if he felt the burden of the humiliations which were thrown upon him. When the child had learned that everything that he said was twisted, turned into ridicule, and made the cause of chastisement, 
he was entirely silent, and only with the greatest pains could a word be drawn from him. This silence exasperated Simon, and made him furiously command the boy to sing, laugh, and be merry. At other times he would order Louis to be silent and emotionless for hours, and have nothing to do with the bird cage which was on the table, and which was the only thing left that the little fellow could enjoy. This cage held a number of birds, and a piece of mechanism, an automaton, in the form of a bird, which ate like a living creature, drank, hopped from bar to bar, opened his bill, and sang the air which was so popular before the revolution. Oh, Richard! Oh, my king! End of chapter 25, part 1, read by Bertha Mason, Nottingham, November 2021.